Grammy-nominated pianist, composer, and collaborative artist Richard Vallatuto. He has been described by the LA Times as a vivid soloist, vigorously virtuosic, quietly dazzling, and an all-around go-to new music specialist. I sat down with Richard to discuss his tenacious and seemingly fearless career just days before his move from Los Angeles to New York. So, Richard Valatuto, welcome to Classical Chop Studio. Thank you, Brett. <laughs> Glad to be in the studio of Classical Chops. Okay, so, Richard, you have been a fixture of the new music scene and just the music scene in general. Um, you're a concert pianist, and you're leaving to go to New York to pursue your uh, doctorate. Can you tell us? I want to hear about this. This is amazing. Making so, this decision, yeah, sure. It's, I mean, it obviously it's so troubling when your fixtures leave. Like, um, I like, I like it when my, you know, light fixtures and fans stay in place. But uh, <laughs> if, <laughs> uh, yeah, technically, I'm I'm going to, uh, you know, upstate New York, so they call it. Although it's like it's the Finger Lakes area, Ithaca. What's going to Cornell it? University? Oh, Cornell, yeah. And um, I'm 31 years old, and <laughs> I'm going to get my doctorate. So I'm going back to school after basically eight years eight of years. not being in school. No, that's not, seven years. So how did this come about? And where where did where, where was that moment where you were like, wait, I want to go back to school? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's a... And then how did you find the place? Because, I mean, right. like, you can go anywhere. Sure, sure. <laughs> you Thank you. be on faculty at Thanks. these places. Thanks for thinking that. No, that was the funny <laughs> thing. It was like, I would tell people I was going there or... Um, you know, I was, I was going to interview and whatnot. And they're like, oh, for the, for the faculty? For professor position? I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, and in fact, um, part of it is, as much as I've enjoyed my vibrant and varied career in L.A. with all of the wonderful colleagues and institutions therein, um, it's a bit hard, as people might notice, to cobble together a, a reliable stream of income as a freelancer. And um, to supplement that, we often like to take more or less permanent positions, especially in educational institutions. And um, with my beloved MFA from CalArts, a lot of people don't quite consider that highly qualified enough, at least uh, on paper, for the type of teaching work I'd really like to be doing, which is, you know, a full professor of some sort, um, but definitely in a music department, hopefully as a piano-focused thing, because I feel like I know a fair amount about that at this point <laughs> uh, and have some amount of experience doing piano-related activities in uh, especially classical new music. Okay, so you you truly want to pursue an academic career. So that's, yeah, okay. that's definitely like a good half of it. But the other half is, you know, it's really hard to like find that quietude and mental space and just resources to work on those really big projects that other people won't necessarily get behind. Not because they don't believe in it, but it's just when it's your project, it's your project. Right. And to... So wait, you're kind of insinuating like Ellie's a lot, has a lot of distractions. Oh, yeah. I mean, isn't it fun? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Uh. No, it's amazingly fun. And I, I, I guess distractions actually wouldn't be the right word for it. It's more like meaningful occupations. Okay. And And... There's so many hugely talented people in the city who have, like, some of the most beautiful overlap of interests and abilities that it's basically impossible if you're a little bit hungry and 
um, you know, curious and interested in other people's works, it's almost impossible not to get involved with other people's stuff. And I've, I've loved working on so many different projects over the years. But, you know, that, that notebook of my own ideas has been filling up steadily. And oh I've noticed, yeah, and I'm sure you're I'm familiar a panic with this. Attack right yes, now. <laughs> sorry to induce that. <laughs> I, I've, I've still inducing them myself occasionally, but, um, so this yeah, is more of kind of like a creative retreat with you sure. know, the degree on the you know on the side. Well, yeah, and it's it's one of those you know, I quote unquote real programs where it's it's very well funded and like you know an extremely small community at least the doctoral department of the music program. So I just I recently went to I went to the dress rehearsal. Wild Up was playing for the Master Crowl, mm-hmm. Ellen Reed and Terry Riley in C, mm-hmm. which was so fantastic. And you were playing, you were amazing. So tell me a little bit about Wild Up. It's a collective of musicians, technically, right? A collective. That is that is what it has always oh, been okay. called. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The name. Yeah. The, the the sort of Appalachian modern music collective has always been attached. Um, and it's sometimes used and sometimes not, but it kind of is the best way to describe it where um, everyone has varying roles in the group. And it's a pretty flexible band. So certain projects will involve only two people. Certain projects involve 25 people. And it always has this one core identity uh, as as the ensemble. But in this case, we were basically the house band for the L.A. Master Chorale <laughs> of this, uh, you know, great premiere of Ellen Reed's, uh, who's been um, a colleague of mine since we were students together at CalArts. And it's been pretty amazing to witness her meteoric rise, oh my gosh, especially I'll in the say. last couple of years. Um, and and the yeah, piece was stunning. Yeah, I mean, she always, she always brings something pretty singular to the stage. And um, it's been really exciting to, like, watch her, her language develop in... Um, deepen in interesting ways uh, and her collaborators were it i don't see that very often where a composer commits so deeply to not just a librettist but also a researcher as a collaborator yeah that was a, that was nice where where it's multidisciplinary in that respect um so that was really exciting and then you know of course working with grant gershon and the master corral it was it was a fabulous music making experience and cool to see Two different groups with pretty different ethoses, ethoses, <laughs> ethi. <laughs> no, it's it's Greek. Uh, anyway, uh, just to see those combine in a really quick but you mm. know exciting way. So tell me kind of the genesis of of your role in Wild Up. So you going from like fi- fa- um, founding member to like arts administrator. You've played. You've worn many hats, right? I have worn a lot of hats in the group. Part of that was because. Um, I worked with a composer at Brevard Music Festival when I was in college, uh, a great composer who's in the Baltimore area now, uh, Joshua Bornfield. And he was um, the mutual contact between Chris Roundtree and I. So when I was at CalArts, Josh knew I was going there, told Chris to give me a call because he knew he would need a keyboardist for this group he was starting. And me, along with a few other people from CalArts, were in that first couple of concerts and um, when I graduated, I didn't have a whole lot of work. <laughs> so this thing was taken off, and I offered to do some librarian work and um, kind of be a member of the creative team and, you know, generally just bounce ideas around. And also I did a fair amount of, like, just gophering, <laughs> gophering. <laughs> bringing boxes of stuff to the gig. <laughs> um, 
but now now it's transitioned. I mean, I I'm pretty much just like performing with the group, which is feeling good. But it's you know, in the last several years, we've gotten a board. We're you know an organization. We have management um, with David Lieberman artists. So it's it's been amazing to be with it from the beginning. I've been asking other people about this, but that journey from putting together something like a passion project to making it actually legitimate. I mean, how do you sustain that? And I think you'd have to ask Chris Roundtree about that because so much of it comes from his just like fueled, intense drive to push it through that strainer. But it also takes the players to believe something's going on, right? Or the ones everyone's just like, bye. Absolutely. No, and and from the very beginning, everyone bought in really Mm. hard, especially when it was, you know, we were doing shoestring shoestring concerts. And um, everyone everyone was all about the music and the togetherness and just the idea that you know, we're capable and excited and, like, we like to play music in a context and through a delivery method that is different than most other experiences we might otherwise have. Right, and meaningful to the group. Really meaningful, yeah. I love that. So tell me about some of your new projects. One of them is... Um should we start with Nacht? Sure, sure. Yeah, Nacht. Oh, wait, we're not calling it. Or, yeah. Well, Nacht, yeah, well, you liked it so much. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm interested in transitioning to that as the working title. I think it would look great, like, Thanks. on merch, too. Yeah, like, I agree. Like hashtag Nacht. Everyone loves, like, short, all-capitalized things these days, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So Nacht, N-A-K-H-T, it was, was the name of a program I did uh, for Piano Spheres, in 2014, I'm not. I'm forgetting <laughs> the year. Actually, it was a few years ago, um, and it is my Nocturnes and Lullabies project of uh, contemporary works for solo piano that are either called Nocturne or Lullaby, or somehow pertain to nocturnal existence or some kind of soporific state. Oh my god! Yeah. So those two words are like trigger words these days. So how Are did they? you no, I'm teasing. <laughs> no, I'm just yeah. how did you ever how did you what, tell me about the research oh for gosh. that? Like uh, where do you even begin? Yeah, where did it I don't even know where it came from. I think I don't know, how did you start finding material? That's a great question. Or I, weeding material out, I guess. Yeah, it's I was partially intrigued. I think every every one of us classical musicians at some point or another or maybe multiple points we get kind of fixated on genre oh, right yes we do. yeah you know and like you you get excited about like oh all fantasies or you know whatever <laughs> and it's like all sonatas and you know some of them feel like so contrived um and the the like art of the piano recital um as people like to refer to it a lot is is something i really believe in like because the repertoire is so rich and vast we pianists if we're just dealing with composed music you know not even writing it ourselves, but just having a repertoire of composed music at our disposal, we can essentially create infinite numbers of programs or like mixtapes, essentially, where the pieces are important by themselves, but you're really curating a musical journey through the recital where it's it's more like the album concept applied to a, a concert program. Right, and the format of the traditional right. piano recital still holds. It still holds, and... Part of the thing that can be distracting or um, burdensome or challenging is that because the repertoire is so vast, we really need those like thematic touchstones 
or something. And I, I think we're all familiar with these kinds of programs where it's like, the year was 1950, you know, and like <laughs> just pieces from around 1950 or, you know, pieces from a certain country or pieces from a certain where whatever. And for me, I think it came at a period in time where I was really enjoying playing soft, mostly slow music. I, I'm not, I'm not sure quite how that came about, but it probably had something to do with having a lot of roommates through grad school and for the first few years in my my upright piano, this like Young Chang, had the felt practice pedal where it lowers that long strip of felt between the hammers and the strings, and you get that gorgeous, kind of extremely quiet but like very even and pearly piano sound that um, sometimes I prefer to the normal piano sound. So like, so the atmosphere kind of activated. Yeah, the atmosphere just activated a lot of spending time like in these like very resonant slow spaces, and that's not to say like. I mean, sure, we can think of several night pieces that are terrifying or, like, explosive in some ways. Mm -hmm. But it also had to do with the fact that, like, the piano genre of the Nocturne in particular, it, it almost has this, like, um, it's, it's like, owned by the Chopin Nocturne. Like, <laughs> Chopin pe you say Nocturne, people just think of Chopin Nocturnes. And some people will be like, well, he got it from John Field. And then other people might be like, yeah, and Faure wrote some good ones, too. But other than that, it's, like, what, what is there? Um, so I kind of liked the idea of a challenge. I just started with nocturnes at first, but then I got attracted to this balance of nocturnes and lullabies because most nocturnes tend to be these like sprawling kind of fantasy type pieces, and the most lullabies tend to be very contained and aphoristic. So they felt like a, a nice counterbalance. You're making me think of the Carter, the night fantasy. Oh yeah, which yeah, I love right. But yeah, that's kind of. Yeah. And it's brilliant and exciting. Um, and I, maybe I'll play it one day when I, yeah, maybe, and maybe in all my time in, at a, yes. <laughs> in grad school, I'll just oh devote God. a semester to yes. learning the night fantasies. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but, but yeah, having, having those challenges kind of put for myself. Did you start going towards any composer that maybe you didn't know had some, had nocturnal works? Well, and... I'm a, I'm a person who just, kind of researches spontaneously. I'm kind of in, an incurable searcher. I love especially that. Especially when it comes to like... That's what the internet's so great about. Right, and now, I mean, now that you can just look at most scores instantaneously, it became really exciting just to be like, okay, what, in this case, what are the nocturnes out there? Like, and every time I came across a new composer, I just look at their work list. Right. And like, you know, and like, you know, they, everyone has a website, everyone's got a work list. And then it, it became interesting to me to kind of focus on these pieces that were not the well-worn path. Um, and then with, with that Piano Spheres recital that I referred to, I commissioned Nicholas Deo for a new piece that we titled Nocturne. And it was kind of, actually his work was the inspiration for the Nocturnes and Lullabies as well because his the other big piano solo he had written up to that point was his Lullaby 2. And he has six lullabies, lullabies th one through six, for varying ensembles. Number four was written for my group Narwallaby. Um, but number two is a piano solo written for a great pianist in San Diego, Brendan Nguyen. And um, I knew I wanted to play that, and I knew I had this commission. So I commissioned the Nocturne, and then for a recital I did on his the series that he's the artistic director of, Wasteland, they had me 
for a recital a couple years ago. And that was the first, like, nocturnes and lullabies. And the kind of linchpins of the program were Nick Deo's two big solos. But in between, there was Benita Marcus and Lachenmann and a piece by Wolfgang von Schweinitz and Sherino and just contemporary composers whose work I'm really interested in and all had written pieces kind of of this genre. So those pieces, like between those two programs, they kind of developed into an album uh, that I just recorded on, only a month ago. It was kind of a combination of those programs from Pianospheres and Wasteland and involved a couple of other pieces that I had kind of in my back pocket from composers that I had a more or less close relationship to. And uh, that was recorded by the great Nick Tipp, who um, I always love working with him as an as an engineer and, and a sound designer for, for concerts. And, and it uh, doesn't have a release date yet, but I'm looking forward to getting that out there. So what's it like working with someone, a producer of that caliber on these kind of projects? Yeah. What's going on in the booth? Yeah, Nick did help produce it. He he wasn't like the full-time producer. I, it was definitely co-produced by myself and him and also um, the composer, Nicholas Deo. Uh, but we were working in a very nice studio that had all the amenities. Yeah, it's, it is important to have production on your side, right? Like someone someone in the booth as just a set of ears kind of calling the shots. Because, um, you know, when you're in there, you have a set of goals and you're hearing certain things. But on the, on the other side of speakers, which is ultimately the medium that it's going to be reproduced on, you just have someone saying, like, that's the one. That's the one that conveys it. Or, you know what, I hear you going for this, but can you do 30% more? Because maybe to you as the performer, it sounds like you're doing the musical thing. But as we know from various concert halls, y- y- it's always good to have a pair of ears in the back of the hall for your concerto debut or whatever. Just to be like, yeah, that thing you're going for. Could be more. More, just more. <laughs> and, uh, that's usually what we hear, right? More, right, more. more. Or um, recently I, I, <laughs> I was told, yeah, it's, it's really good, but could it just be more beautiful? <laughs> and like actually I love that note yeah because it's a great reminder to us as musicians like what are we really going for and I don't mean classical beauty like prettiness but like that kind of deep art beauty capital A art beauty so wait what are you going for what am you, I going for when you sit for? down at the piano oh my gosh whoa <laughs> <sighs> um, that's a great question what am I going for when I sit down at the piano it honestly depends on context. Uh, I feel a lot of time I'm constantly going through a little checklist of who I'm working with, in what context we're working, and who we're doing it for. And the answer could be, you know, I'm working with no one in the context doesn't matter and I'm doing it for myself, which might just be like playing alone at home. Or it's, you know, being a rehearsal pianist with a lot of like really talented people for a stage production, or it's being an accompanist for a recording. And um, I, I'd have to say like it drastically depends on those things. So being adaptable. Very yeah, yeah. I have pretty adaptable adaptable goals. Um somewhere and a career. You're yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's kind of I want wanted that to be the focus of this episode is sure. just all the amazing things you do. Yeah, so you're, uh, I got a little preview of Slant, which is a improvised album. Well, 
partially improvised. Yeah, we call it a comp- composed improvised concept album. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And so how did that come about? So my my colleague and very good friend Dave Wilson, who's an excellent saxophone player and equally excellent musicologist, um, now teaching in New Zealand, he did a lot of work uh, in Macedonia and has a lot of experience with Eastern European jazz, um, but is a composer himself and um, has a musicology PhD from UCLA. So just like generally well-read and a lot of interests, but we, we didn't necessarily have a lot of overlapping areas of expertise. So it, Perfect for a collaboration. Perfect for a collaboration of this nature where we're excited about having a friendship and excited about each other's musical abilities, but this improv- composed improvisation album was kind of the center point that we could find for a sort of like crossover um, although we don't like to use that word, I guess. But, but you know, he, his being a, a jazz player primarily and um, also, you know, composer of concert music occasionally, and then my being primarily an interpreter, but also composer of concert music and sometimes improviser, um, although most of my improvisation has not been in the jazz idiom at all. It was interesting to find something that felt real. It didn't feel like a cop-out, kind of like, simulacrum of those things (laughs) like a real true honest music making that allowed us to both be perfectly equal collaborators so every track on the album is a composition concept that we came up with together but it's more like a framework or like a an environment and then you poured the music in and then you pour the music in so it's kind of like um where did you where were you surprised that you came together and were there places where artistically you didn't I don't or you had to work through things I, I think it was it's just kind of that thing where it was always fun to play together um in kind of just like a jam setting just like get together and make sounds um and coming up with these concepts actually helped ground us so it wasn't it wasn't so strict that one or the other of us felt constrained by a language a musical language or like set of rules that we weren't familiar with or comfortable with, but it wasn't so broad that it's kind of just one of those like free improv, play anything forever, and all of the tracks are forty minutes albums. It was like just enough, um, just enough directive for the creative impetus for the spark. Right. right. Yeah, that's great. So it's ten tracks, and each one I would say the average track length is like three, three and a half minutes. So kind of like the normal song length. Yeah, I, I kind of liken it to like you have. You have your favorite neighborhood, and it's always that neighborhood. Um, I'm talking about the pieces, I guess. Each composition is kind of a neighborhood, but every time you enter it, you might walk down a different street or go to a different restaurant, meet different people. So you're always engaging with this same thing in a pretty different way. In a familiar uh, atmosphere. In a familiar atmosphere, but you're, you're adding to your appreciation of that thing. So every time we would rehearse we were essentially creating a new version of each piece. And then what we ended up recording um, just happened to be what happened that day. It was a whole city block. Yeah, it was a whole city block. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I, love, I love the album. Thank you. That will be released imminently. <laughs> so, uh, where, And where are you going to release that? So that's um, going to be released on PF Mentum, which is uh, a very prolific label that's been 
active in Southern California mostly for the last few decades. And um, they mainly champion like experimental and improvised music. So this kind of fit somewhere in that niche. And it, it's, um, I've been on one of their releases before and a ton of my colleagues have released work with them. Two guys I went to school with work for them. So it feels like it feels like it's going to be taken care of and, and it's going to be among a lot of like-minded art and people. So we're very excited about that. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about um, your compositions. First of all, As Above, So Below. Oh, yeah. And I've noticed this trend lately that pianists, instrumentalists in general, are composing. Thank God. I know. <laughs> You know, there was that chunk there, kind of my generation, where it was just not okay to do more than one thing. Yeah. Generation of specialists. Yes. I'm still feeling that. Everyone compartmentalized, especially with the composers. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't even play instruments. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. And that's definitely changing. Oh. I mean, there are always exceptions, of course. Well, now with my students, you don't even have an option. Like, oh, cool. Go grab a kazoo, like a melodica, whatever you need to do. Yeah. But no, you're not just composing. You're not just playing your trumpet. No. Good for you. Because it's... Okay, so talk a little bit about that. And um, and, and how long have you been composing? I actually wrote my very first piece while I was at CalArts. Um, so only eight years. And actually, the, the impetus to do it grew out of exactly this indignation mm-hmm. that we were just talking about. The idea that... I actually felt like through some sort of weird happenstance and kind of things outside of my control, I had kind of been like forced into a box just because there's so many people that say like, well, when you're a pianist, you're a pianist and that's just what you do and you play piano. And and just to break out of when you're a pianist, you know, educated in the, the Western classical tradition, right. that means you only play this very specific repertoire and it's mostly solo recitals and concertos. Just to break out of that was kind of a, you know, extreme moment personally and, um, you know, philosophically. But then to kind of recognize that, oh, all of these, all of the great composers that we enshrine were mostly themselves pianists as well. Absolutely. I mean, most of them. And doing a thousand different things. Right. Writing, Liszt and Schumann. I mean, these people were writing reviews and books. Exactly. They didn't seem to mind. Playing each other's music, making new versions of each other's music. Um, they were so, basically trying to understand music. Just, yeah, right, li- right. living, breathing music. Yes. Music music not being your, you know, desk job where you have your one, your one place to go and you do the one thing, but music being, like, a lifestyle and a, a network of friends and community and, like, a way to feed your spirit and belief system and um, experiment with um, new ways of thinking and, and all that sort of thing. So it kind of it grew out of a... Just, just I, I, I need to write something. I just knew I like needed to write something, and um, yeah. Where do you go from there? And it, right, where do you go from there? And it, it probably helps that CalArts is a community of musicians who are so well rounded in a lot of ways and open, very open, very interested in exploring, very interested in trying new things, failing at new things. And you could yell that down the hall, like I need to write. Right, and right. Probably thirty <laughs> people would come up. <laughs> yeah, manuscript paper. Absolutely, absolutely. I actually, some of my first pieces were not um, notes on a staff pieces, but um, text pieces um, or just ways to encourage organized sound making that 
wasn't a composition. Because what, you didn't want to just go straight to the piano and improv? No, my piano pieces were so, you know, I kind of feel like I tried out everything before I wrote a piano piece. Because it just, there was too much there. There's so much in my history that I, you know, you can't unremember all the great piano pieces you've played. But like, for me to be like, I'm going to write a piece for an unlimited number of melodicas. There's no precedent in my in my experience for that. So it was kind of like, well, whatever happens, it's definitely going to be the singular thing that I've heard. The so baggage. That's is, good. Like the baggage is gone. There's no the baggage, yeah. yeah. And it's, I think, the idea of it not being a capital C composition, but just being like an opportunity to make music with other people um, and like one that when someone has a question, they just ask me. <laughs> so maybe that's somewhat egotistical, but just a way to, you know, direct a musical event was the initial. Um, and then uh, being part of Wild Up was the kind of second huge step where as a collective, as we were discussing, people wear a lot of different hats. And several members of that group are really well-established composers now, um, excellent composers who did a lot of work. And it, it was really inspiring to be among them. And But also kind of gives you that feeling well, hey, I can do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially when we only have a certain amount of money for a concert and, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had one more piece to fill such and such a need? And, oh, I'll write that. Like, I'll do it for free because it'll be a good experience for me. Finding those opportunities to make a piece. I've kind of always said about myself, I'm an occasional composer. Not, I mean, in, in the dual meaning of it. So, like, I write on occasion and I write for an occasion. And that's kind of been all of my my pieces and arrangements have been for a specific purpose which helps kind of helps ground the work and gives you a deadline <laughs> right so it's not like this is a work for the ages and when will i finish it i don't know but just <laughs> i've got three and, of those going right now <laughs> right it's due in 2 months and it's for these players it might never be played again go <laughs> you know and that actually helped me learn a lot of things really quickly like a very very crucible-like experience. <laughs> oh, and writing for specific players that you have a rapport with already is absolutely is unbelievable. Right, right? And, and, knowing, and knowing that like when I don't have a good idea or I don't have enough time to write that you know, clarinet melody, I'll just be like, Brian, improvise, please. And knowing that he can do it, um, or wh- whomever, you know, capitalizing on the strengths of the various members of the group, and that you're in the safe space to experiment. Yeah. Right? If these were strangers, someone give you a dirty look like, wait. Right. I'm, you know, improvise. Right. Well, and there's also, there's a lot of safety that comes with doing something for free. <laughs> <laughs> People get a lot less frustrated. Good point. Than yeah. if they know that you were paid $10,000 and they don't like it. <laughs> right. If it's, you know, they're like, well, he did it. You know, he or she did it. They did it. Like, I'll, I'll take it. Let's you know? do it. It's Let's great. Do it. Um but yeah, I, I haven't written something in a year now, partially because of applying to school and, you know, really doing some major projects in L.A. in the last year. Um, I think you need to write a goodbye nocturne to L.A. Aw, I think I will do that. <laughs> I think I will do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you have to leave us with something. Food uh, for thought. Just, yeah, just putting it out there. Yeah, thanks. Um, Okay, so you no know, no current projects with your compositions, but they're they're being processed into the surface, I'm sure. Sure, and I think all of us creatives have have that ongoing notebook that I was referring to. Yeah, Whether, the, for me, I'm just it's just the resistance or the allowing of it. Of course, right? It's just like get out 
of your way. Right. And sometimes all you have time for is like that seven word, you know, encapsulation of the idea. Right. Yes, yes, yes. It's like, like, make your list if that's what you need. Yeah, peace for oboe and glockenspiel. (laughs) Stop right there. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. Oh, God, please. (laughs) No, but, you know, like something, prisms, prisms rotating in opposite directions, and that's the piece. And you just, like, just to, because you felt that in a moment, and that you felt like that could be a piece. Or, like, responding to a biographical event, which is really what As Above, So Below was, um, yeah, tell me about uh, As Above, So Below. So I actually wrote that for the same Piano Spheres concert we've been talking about. And it was, at the time, I was spending a lot of time thinking about lunar cycles, partially because I I was particularly invested in my Ashtanga yoga practice then. And you always take full moons and new moons off. You don't practice on a full moon and you don't practice on a new moon. And it's mostly for for safety. It takes longer for the body to heal if you become um, slightly injured. But also, like, those are times of rest. It's kind of the peak of your inhalation and the peak of your exhalation. And um, I was born in the month of February. I'm an Aquarian. And it was actually my 28th year. And February usually has 28 days. And that's slightly shorter than an entire lunar cycle. So I, I got that type of, like, numerology and just, like, calendar significance kind of intrigued me and um the whole piece um well leading up to it i was doing a lot of work with bass string harmonics on the grand piano particularly working with wolfgang von schweinitz and a few other composers on this technique and i got excited about the idea of kind of assigning various partials and you know fundamentals that those partials would be played off of to various um, new and full moons during every February that I had lived. (laughs) So I I looked at every, I looked at the farmer's almanac for every February of my life in the location that I was at that time and kind of plotted this sort of graph of these moons using, expressed by various harmonic partials. And so, you correlated those to the nodes of the string. Uh, right, right. The so there's there is a correlation there. And um, did you do the zodiac signs that they were in as well? I did not. Oh, uh, I did not. That can be part two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I'm thinking it's actually a very it, it's a long piece, and there's not too much going on. And I kind of feel like it'd be a great template for maybe a two piano piece. So just layering on more activity rather than like. Making it even longer. When I was listening to it, I thought it could be orchestrated as well. Oh, thanks. It seems, yeah, it seems like it's yeah. it something like celestial and big. Yeah, or at least to to sustain those those frequencies and right, resonances. Right. So, wait, tell me about the bass notes and then creating these harmonics. Well, I mean, I, are you like labeling them? I mean, they have to be labeled, right? They do have to be labeled <laughs> because um, there's just so many of them. And as anyone who has tried to write for it or perform them know. Um, you really have to be very exact, especially on the, the grand piano because the, the bass string harmonics are so rich. And if you're off by just a millimeter, you get an equally interesting sound. But not the right but, one. But it's not the one you're going for. So what do you mar- how do you mark it with a pen? Well, that is Ill- ill-advised. Because uh, <laughs> piano technicians really don't like that. 
Um, With the, can the ink do something to the string? Well, it's just permanent. <laughs> uh, it technically <laughs> no, but I I think you know there is a pride to having a beautiful of looking course. piano interior. You can't tie anything around them, obviously. I do actually. Oh, you can. So that's what I oh. did, and that's a technique. I learned from Wolfgang von Schweinitz. But he he came up with this pretty ingenious method of just tying a little bit of either wool or I actually prefer cotton yarn around the specific nodes that you want. And it's completely, you know, it doesn't damage the string at all. You have to be a little bit careful and there's various precautions to take when you're actually tying it on. But when you're done with it, you just, you know, untie it or snip it off and it's just like new. And especially because they're around those nodes, um, you know, on the keys, piano playing is virtually unaffected. Unaffected. You might say like, oh, well, you're, you're, you're kind of canceling out some of those really high partials, but I haven't noticed. I've played entire programs with those pieces of yarn on the bass strings, and there's no, there's no loss of richness of sound, and you get the advantage of you can color code them. You have this little tactile sensation of feeling the knot of the yarn. Right. And so and it, you uh, press down on the knot. You press down on the knot and because the knot is smaller than the size of your finger, you get an even more precise harmonic um, result. But it also it enables very facile quick movement around these pretty specific harmonics. Um, for this piece I only used the um, the ninth, eleventh, seventh, and fifth partials because I wanted to keep things in as close a register as possible. Well, at a certain point, you can't reach anymore, right? At a certain point, you can't reach. Um, but more importantly, um, I really liked the various deviations from the equal-tempered scale that each one of those harmonics offers, where the 11th partial is essentially a quarter tone, but then the 9th partial is, you know, two cents higher than the normal equal-tempered node. And then the 5th th- the partial and the 7th partial are um, substantially lower than their equal-tempered tempered counterparts, but not quite as low as a quarter tone. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your work at the LA Phil, collaborating with vocalists and the vocal department there. Sure. I mean, it's not just limited to singers. I mean, it's primarily a lot of work with singers and the various stage productions of sung works. But um, I actually, I got my start as kind of the accompanist for conductor soloist rehearsals, mostly for Hollywood Bowl concerts, where... um, I knew someone that worked in the offices for a while, and she knew I was a pianist in town, and I guess they had a need for pianists over the summer. So kind of doing those one, two, three-hour rehearsals just to get the soloist and the conductor on the same page. So I got my work doing that, and then they kind of figured out that, as we've been discussing, I'm, I'm willing to throw myself in front of anything. And, you know, as we know, the L.A. Phil is an increasingly exciting and vibrant orchestra, and they're putting on some of the most compelling and diverse new music by an orchestral organization in the world. And they've been doing that for years. So when they wanted to do Frank Zappa's 200 Motels, they needed a pianist to cover another, like, 22 hours of rehearsal. And... There, you know, my name came up kind of like, well, this guy will play anything. <laughs> you know, maybe like it won't sound good, but <laughs> but it, it ended up working out, and we had a, a loads of fun. And what was that like prepping that piece? Oh my gosh, unlike any experience I've ever had, from the fact that it's almost unrealizable at the piano because there's a full rock band in the middle of a gigantic orchestra that only Verez could have dreamed of, 
and then Zappa, you know, took it from Perez. But also, like, some of the sounds that are being made are just impossible to play on the piano. So those challenges were really fascinating. Um, but most of my work has been some type of the two of those things, either an accompanist, more or less, for auditions or rehearsals with conductor and soloist, or um, the really fun stuff is getting in the rehearsal room and watching these amazing productions that they put on, you know, semi-staged at Disney Hall, often with amazing either projection, um, beautiful lighting, costumes, sets, working on those with a cast and a director and a conductor. I got to play under Susanna Melke for the Midsummer Night's Dream when they did a abridged staging of the play and the Mendelssohn music, and um, working with um, Unsuk Chen on the opera Alice in Wonderland, which was just a massive undertaking, and the soloists on that were absolutely incredible. So wait, what are you noticing? I mean, you don't, have to, you don't have to name names, but what are you noticing between all these conductors since you're seeing a lot of them? Oh my gosh, that is know, such a scary a lot, question. Right? <laughs> I feel like the conductor mafia is going to come out no, after no, me if I, I answer wrong. Be, no, I'm not looking for negative things. <laughs> no, no, just no. like style. Or Yeah, I think, I think one of the really exciting things about working with conductors, not only as a performer, but also as this kind of different role as accompanist or, you know, sort of orchestra proxy, every conductor has a style. And it's, it's so fun to see the way music manifests through physical gesture rather than just sonic gesture. And it's fun once you really, once you kind of get over the fear of being the full orchestra as a pianist and having to negotiate every single cue and tempo change and like make sure you bring out that oboe solo so the singer gets their note, but also make sure you don't drop the tempo a shade under the conductor's beat and all, you know, like and predicting where the rehearsal is going to pick up so you don't waste any seconds here and there. Not only, once you get over the fear of that, you really start to get into understanding without words what someone's musical priorities are and trying to help them with that. So it's a very, I don't want to say it's a thankless job because I have been thanked on a number of occasions for the work, but it's, it's kind of a conductor whispering job where when you're most effective at it is when you kind of dig into what that conductor wants to achieve, whether it's pragmatic or musical or whatever, and just helping make it happen without getting too hung up on your own musical priorities and and learning to recognize those you actually realize you're just you're just responding to people and you're like learning to appreciate individual people for who they are and of course you know everyone's got their baggage and everyone's got their challenges but everyone also has their their beautiful singular aspects and it's just you know one of the reasons why I think we do this is just to get to know other people who have some drive to do this crazy thing that is a career in music. Richard, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brett. It's been a pleasure being here. I'm Brett Banducci, and you've been listening to Classical Chops Studio, the podcast from classicalchops.org. You can follow us on Facebook and YouTube, and if you haven't already, please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening.